0: You know, I can understand the the reaction of the community because I, too, started as a homophobic Muslim myself. I felt that this letter allowed me to share my story of struggle towards the acceptance of my son and ultimately supporting him in the wedding. For me, it felt like my faith and my humanity, you know, clashed.
1: Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project.
2: And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project and this is the moment that Dana always has to constrain me from singing the theme. I don't know (laughs) why, I just love our theme music, so there it is. It's
1: good you still love it, Um, now that we're into our fourth season. And I hope everybody else does too. Yeah. (laughs) So...
2: I wanna just take a minute to explain how we came to do this story today and how I came to meet this amazing woman, Sadiqa Jessa, who I interview in this episode. So Sadiqa Jessa has two sons. One, Ali Reza, is the subject of this story in the podcast and his marriage. The other is Khalil, who graduated last summer from Windsor Law and uh, has long been known to us and we'll go back to Khalil in a moment. But today's story is about the marriage of Ali Reza in July 2017 to his same-sex partner Paul in what is said to be the world's first ever Koja Muslim same-sex marriage Yay! the family gave their full support to this marriage which was celebrated complete with Instagram Facebook <laughs> posts the usual in Vancouver with family and friends just like any other summer wedding so what was the problem Well, Sadiqa Jessa was at the time the Secretary General of the Organization of, this is a mouthful, North American Shia, Ithna, Ashiri Muslim Communities. And the acronym, which you'll hear in the interview, is NASIMCO. So Sadiqa's was a global leadership position in this organization, and it was unique for a woman in this community at this time to hold such a high position. Immediately after the wedding, Sadiqa started to get assailed with calls to resign her position. She got personal messages, there was an online petition that collected thousands of signatures, pressure from her fellow executives in NASIMCO to resign. And so she did resign her position as Secretary General of NASIMCO, but as she explains, very clearly and on her own terms. And her resignation letter, which describes the tension that she had to face between the traditional views of her faith, her realization that this amounted to homophobia, and her absolute determination to support her son in his wedding and others in the Muslim LGBT community was what won out here. Mm. And she describes that in this letter, which we're going to be posting on the podcast page. And it's, it's a very moving letter. And then after Sadiqa's interview, we turned to Khalil to ask him to add his comments about what it was like watching his mom turn into an activist (laughs) on LGBTQ issues. And you may remember, if you've been listening to the podcast from the first season, that Khalil did a podcast with us in the very first season called Islamophobia in our backyard, right after Donald Trump had imposed restrictions on Muslims entering the U.S., great episode i think it's actually our most listened to it episode is. ever it still
1: is our most popular episode ever
2: so we're going to put that repost that episode um on the web page as well today so let's listen to my conversation with sadika
1: mm-hmm.
3: Hello, Sadiqa. It's Julie calling. How are you? I'm great. How are you, Julie? I'm good. And I'm anxious to get into this conversation with you because we have been chatting for a while now, and you have a really important story to tell here. So I'm going to jump right in and ask you, first of all, to say a little bit about how back in 2017 you were the Secretary General Of the North American Shia Muslim organization, and this is part of the World Federation of Cojia Shia Muslims. So, could you start by talking about what serving in this position, this very important position, meant to you as a Muslim woman? So, Julie, I've been holding
0: uh, this position at Nasimco for the last nine years. This specific role as the Secretary General of Nasimco, it was that of an executive, and as an executive, the role allowed me to sit at the table of leadership, at a global level. So like Nassim Ko represents a group of Muslims that migrated from Africa with roots going back to India, about 140,000 plus in population spread across the globe. So my initial motivation to join this organization was to help develop people, Most of our mosques, which are part of these organizations and community centers, they're all run by male executives. Mm -hmm. And that's how it's been. So there's very minimal representation of women. I would say at this point around 1% or 2% at the most. Mm -hmm. And that, too, has been recent because there's been real work towards engaging more women. I felt I had to start with myself. I mean, in conclusion, for me, it meant being able to sit at the table of leadership that comprised of only 1% of women, and I believe in order to make change, you must be the change in
3: action. Well, this was a really important step, obviously, for a woman to be in this executive position. But as you're going to explain to our listeners, in the summer of 2017, you were forced to resign your position Mm -hmm. following the marriage of your son to his same-sex partner. And in fact, an online petition grew to call upon you to resign. Uh, I, I know that you wrote an incredibly moving letter of resignation, which I'm going to include on the podcast website with this, with this episode, which explained why you decided to give in to these demands for you to resign. And I just want to read one sentence that I thought was particularly poignant. Mm-hmm. You said, my stance today is not just as a devoted mother, but as a human being who has painfully observed how the community has usurped the rights of God's creation in the name of Islam and passed judgment. So could you fill in the background here for people who don't know this story, and it did have a lot of media attention at the time, about why you ended up writing that letter, what this pressure on you to resign was, and how you tried to explain your motivations and your decision to your community?
0: Uh, this is, you know, even as I have this interview with you, it's, it, it it incurs some emotions in me already I'm when sure. I answer this, yes. and, you know, uh, it takes me back to, like, July mm. 12th, when I actually tended in my resignation letter. I was really deeply pressured by members of my own community and my own executives uh, within Nasimco to resign, and some of them, I think, was... It's about fear of their own reputations of being associated with me, and I think some of it was that because there was so much pressure. Uh, There was letters from regional federations and executives of Africa, Pakistan, and they were blatantly asking for my
3: resignation. This was clearly Sadiqa because of the fact that your son had married his same-sex partner. This was the reason. This was the sole reason, right? That was the sole
0: reason, and for them, I had violated the tenets of Islam, Mm -hmm. and therefore I could not stand in that position with that belief. And um, as you know, it resulted in a petition, which was like, when I looked at it last, it had about 1,000 signatures. And there was, uh, you know, pressures in terms of I was also getting a lot of messages myself as well. So when I realized I had no, no choice but to resign, I felt I was going to, it was an opportunity for me to tell my story. Mm. You know, I feel there's an unacknowledged population of the LGBT community that continues to be brushed under the carpet. Yes. And, and we know statistically that uh, 10% of the population is LGBTQ. Mm. And and that's representation in all religions. So, right.
3: Yes. Yeah, right?
0: So yes. homosexuality does not discriminate on religion, race, or color. I mean, it yeah. starts at the human level. I mean, that's what I learned yes. from my journey. You know, I, I can understand the, the reaction of the community because I, too, started as a homophobic Muslim myself. That's and so,
3: that's so cra- <laughs> courageous of you to say that so frankly.
0: Yeah, I, I felt that this le- letter allowed me to share my story of struggle towards the acceptance of my son and ultimately supporting him in the wedding. For me, it felt like my faith and my humanity, you know, clashed. And I come from a very traditional upbringing, but a very nurturing and loving family. But everything I was taught in the interpretations of the scripture was challenged to me in this situation. Now
3: Sadiqa, you have t- you've also told me when we first talked about this that when this story first broke in public, you felt yourself in in what is sometimes called a double bind, because you were concerned about reinforcing the conflation between Islamophobia, which assumes that all Muslims are homophobic, and doing something about this situation that your family, was facing. And, you know, we call it a double bind because when a group is maligned and discriminated against, as so many Muslims are in Canada and the U.S. are, then calling out bad behavior inside the community seems like kind of giving a gift to the media. But at the same time, I know you felt that your community, every community, has to be able to confront homophobia. So what's the balance here? What's, what, what was the answer here?
0: that's interesting, Julie, because this word double-bind, I'd never quite understood it until I think I faced it myself very clearly, yes,
3: yeah.
0: right? I mean, how do you, I mean, how do you confront homophobia in the Muslim community without giving fuel to Islamophobia? And that's a discussion yes. we as a family had when we were faced with this. The, the first thing is to be able to acknowledge that this exists. Only then can you go towards understanding it, and, and I think Perhaps in my community, this incident provided some level of acknowledgement of the existence of the Muslim LGBT community.
3: Yes, yes. And, and, and yes. therefore
0: giving some space for understanding and conversation. I was, you know, the, as a family, we, we were afraid that our message may be, you know, not clearly heard as to what we mean by, by the, the LGBTQ representation in the Muslim communities. You know, I think the key here is that the main stakeholders in this equation, which is the LGBT Muslim community, they are the ones that need to be engaged to help the community in understanding. Yes. I mean,
3: yes. But I'm sure they're afraid, too, because you see what happened to you. I'm sure, you know, I'm part of what I know you've been trying to do is to give people who are part of the Muslim community and and, uh, LGBTQ the courage to stand up in the same way that you have.
0: Yes, and I think when you said that, it's got to do with courage to be public about it. I mean, I receive so many encouraging communications from across the world of people who That's are facing great. this issue, but it's yes. all private, right? It's all mm-hmm. private. And I mm-hmm. think until it's discussed in the public medium and until the people who are affected by it are part of the solution. Yes. That's yeah. the only way that the answer is going to come from. And I, I mean, I'll give you an example. When this all started, I had a phone call from the leadership of the community mm. and who had, who was asking me to resign. Yeah. And he said, well, you know, they're going to take care of this problem. They're going to go to Aga Sassani. Aga is known to be the highest scholar uh, that many Shias go yes. to for their guidance. Yes. Like you kind of have the Pope. This is a similar way. So they were to go to seek guidance on what to do and get answers. So, of course, you know, I asked, well, who from you is from the LGBT community that is going to accompany you? And he just, like, laughed at me.
3: Yeah, they were going to completely exclude them. Yes, Yes.
0: and they did. So, you know, as the quote goes for Albert Einstein, if we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking, we use when we created them. Yes. And, and if we're not prepared to engage with the very people in the society that it affects, well, how will we find a solution?
3: Very well put. Now, you've also talked to me as the fallout from this has happened, and you have become more and more public about speaking about this issue, Sadiqa, in the last year or so, about the, the difference between accepting LGBT people inside the Muslim community and truly ending discrimination against them. In other words, the kind of difference between just tolerating them and really embracing or ending and ending discrimination. Can you say some more about that distinction? Because I know you, you've talked about this elsewhere and why that's so important.
0: So I feel there's a spectrum going from acceptance to non discrimination. I mean, maybe it's even starting from, you know, tolerating to acceptance to non-discrimination. We may have accepted, but many of the minorities, but are we really free of discrimination?
3: Right.
0: So, right. so let me explain a little bit further on t- what acceptance really means. Uh, and acceptance is when the, there is no intention to change the other person. Yes. Right? So accepting them as an individual in the way they are without any intention to change them. Yes. So that's the definition of acceptance mm. but there is another layer that we don't think about and we stop at acceptance. Discrimination, the definition of discrimination is treating a person or a particular group of people differently especially in a worse way from the way you would treat others because of their skin color, their sexual orientation, their race, yes. whatever minority they may be and and it, it occurs when you actually exclude someone from basic human rights.
3: Yeah, yes. making them feel less of people.
0: Yes. And, and less of people, you don't uh, make them um, the privileges that you enjoy. You make them uh, not so much available to them. So you're kind of excluding them or making it difficult for them to reach those. And yes, I think the, the simplest way that I can explain this is to give you an, another example of how we've, what we've done with the indigenous community. Yes. Right? So, yes. did we give them the access to everything that we enjoy? No, we didn't. And, yes. and, and as a result, the indigenous yeah. community has not been able to progress and reach mm-hmm. the human mm-hmm. potential. Right? So, their community is. And that is affects, affected. The yes. affects the whole
3: community. Yeah. It affects the whole community. So, we
0: have to acknowledge the fact that we created the issue that we're facing today. So, um, and so we failed to give them the access that we enjoyed. And the same is true of, the, of black people, and therefore we have initiatives, such uh, wonderful campaigns as the Black Lives Matter. Yes. So it's a society that limited their access today, and now we're trying to reverse that for the indigenous community and the black community when we played a big part in it. So for me, it's no different for the LGBT community. Yes, we're doing the same thing with them. Yes. And it's high time we need to bring that out as well because that's not acceptable either. When, when we limit their access to basic human rights and we stand in the way to reach the fullest of their potential, it affects the human character. It, it, they can't be, you know, the greatest contributing members of society.
3: Right. And for your uh, son, his choice of a companion was. A basic human right that you were going to defend. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Everybody deserves to have companionship in their life. I mean, yes. it's an important part of human need.
3: So, Sadika, you have become, uh, as we've talked about this over the last year or so, uh, an increasingly outspoken activist on this issue. And I know you've thought very, very deeply about mm. how you can turn what was, you know, a deeply upsetting incident for your whole family and which of course took you away from that leadership position which you had as a woman one of the very first women to hold that position I think it's important not to forget that that was part of the cost that you paid here but Mm -hmm. you are still pressing forward so I have to ask you you know what are you hoping for the Muslim community moving forward here
0: you know, um, it's funny that it's interesting you see me as an outspoken activist, because I actually don't consider myself as one. And, and maybe I, I need to reflect on that, that perhaps <laughs> I, I am. <laughs> I, I'd say by most
3: people's definitions, you are. <laughs>
0: okay. You know, I, I think because of my experience and the reconciling I've had to do and the, my public stance that kind of put out there, it's sort of organically led to that direction. Yes. And, and, I'm, and I guess I get invited to speak about my story. And, and when I do, I feel like I can't sit back. I, yes. I just can't. When you know something is unjust, you just you just cannot. It, it It's a new lens that you have you can't stop seeing without. Yes. So, um, you know, I was recently invited uh, by Salaam USA to speak at the Parliament of World Religions, soon to be going in San Diego to speak at a church. So if I'm invited to speak, I engage. What's interesting here, Julie, though, is that in the Muslim community, I haven't had so many engagements. They're hesitant to approach me to speak. Yes, yes. (laughs) And it's still this double bind that's happening there for them.
3: That they're worried that this will give rise to more uh, anti-Muslim feeling. But as you said earlier on in this conversation, Sadiqa, it's only when the LGBT Muslim community can be heard on this issue that things are really going to change Within yeah. your community.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it needs to be looked at with compassion first yes. and not led with fear. I mean, if, if you don't know, the thing to do is not get scared, but to be courageous and to learn and understand.
3: Well, that's a beautiful way to put it and a great note to end on here, sadika Thank you so much for talking to me today. I've looked forward to our conversation for a long time and thank you very much for being willing to do this for the podcast.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Julie.
3: Hello, Khalil. Hi there. Hi. How are you this morning? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm okay. Thank you so much for doing this on your way to work. (laughs) That's terrific. And you know that I really wanted to include a short piece from you on this podcast that your mother has done with me because I came to know about your family story and you introduced me to your, your mother, Sadika, while you were still a student at Windsor Law. And I know, Khalil, that your mom has in many ways been a role model for you, including your own activism. So I wonder if you could begin by saying something about how cool it is to have a mother who stands up like <laughs> your mom has done here. <laughs>
4: it's very cool. Well, I'm I'm very lucky to have a mother like that and somebody who makes her own story and tells Mm -hmm. her own journey and is truthful about the experiences that she had. And I think most importantly, a mother that is willing to grow and learn from, from her children as well, you know, from the experiences that we have. And I don't think every parent is always willing to grow and learn from their children. And so I'm, I'm lucky that I have a mother who, who does that.
3: And I'm wondering what it's been like for you as her son to watch this process of her going through this change of her own views and then standing up and speaking about them so so publicly and effectively.
4: You know, I am not completely surprised that she's speaking out uh, in the way that she is. And, you know, yeah, I think my mom would say that she is, she wouldn't say that she's an activist.
3: No, I think she would. She she so, absolutely does not. But she is unintentionally, I think. <laughs> but you know, let me let me tell you let me tell you a little story. Okay, <laughs> a few
4: years ago, maybe maybe ten years ago or so, or less, in my local community, in our local mosque, women couldn't vote. Mm. Uh, they couldn't. They, they weren't in the the um, general electorate, and that was right. because of the way that our membership structure was set up. It was a bar for women to join the community. Let me tell you what my mom mom did. She became a member before there were any women members. She got voted onto the membership committee uh, of the community. She recruited a whole bunch of women to join the community. (laughs) And then she brought... uh, She waited two years for them to become full members. She created a new membership structure... She put it through the general, and she got it passed against a an executive committee that was quite hostile to it. And as a result, we had in our community, we have 50% men and 50% women voting members. Wow, fantastic. We wouldn't it, call ourselves an activist even in that scenario. Yeah. She just says, oh, that this
3: is an injustice, and I'm just going to, it needs to be you know big. resolve this
4: injustice myself.
3: Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, one of the things that I really admire about, your mom and I my many things about her, is her intuitive logic about how you go in and deal with an issue like this and make it really clear and really transparent what's at stake here and and as as you say, always to speak her truth. So, Khalil, I, I wanna just ask you one more question this morning. It seems impossible not to say something about this in the light of the terrible massacre that we've just seen in Christchurch of Muslims Mm -hmm. praying in their mosque. You recorded a podcast with me while you were still at Windsor Law, which we called Islamophobia in Our Backyard, Mm -hmm. which sort of jumped off, began with the border restrictions on Muslims crossing into the U.S. that were being introduced by the Trump administration. You and I also worked together that year on a community forum, bringing together people from different faith communities in Windsor to talk about responses to Islamophobia. And I feel like I have gone over and over again through these moments in the last eight, ten years or so of seeing the worst ever moments for Canadian and American Muslims, and that's sort of where we were at with mm-hmm. Islamophobia in our backyard and now Christchurch. So mm-hmm. what do you want to say to people listening to this podcast today about the need to stand up against Islamophobia, but still to call out homophobia when they see it inside any religious
4: community? You know, if you were to take each one of those separately,
3: yeah.
4: the need to call out Islamophobia is really, really important. You know, I, I'll tell you something. I went after the New Zealand attack, I went to a, a mosque around the corner uh, to go to the vigil because I was just feeling so terrible mm. about the, mm. the about what happened. Yeah. And there were a whole bunch of people who got up and spoke. But there was one elderly lady. She had a cane and a really, you know, sort of shaky voice. And she went up there and she said, I've never been to a mosque but everybody who's come up here and spoken before me has said that they're not shocked about what happened. Yeah. She said, you really live like this. You yeah. people really live like this. You're not shocked at all about what happened. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, what, she, when she said that, I, what I realized is that, yeah, I'm not shocked at what happened.
3: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
4: I'm not shocked at all about, about what happened. And I think the reason that this Christchurch massacre felt so absolutely terrible was that on some level, there's some level of guilt that we hold for this because we've allowed the rhetoric in the center of our mm-hmm. of our political sphere to become yeah. so extreme. And, yeah. of course, that's going to inform what's, what's on the extreme end. Yeah. And so all of us, I think all of us in some way, our entire society have caused this, and we know that. How do you then you know, call out homophobia, which
3: just can be used as another form of attack against your community. This is something that Canadian American Muslims and Muslims all over the world live with in their daily lives, this feeling of hostility and this feeling of threat. But imagine what that's
4: like for Muslims of the LGBTQ community. Exactly. But I'm sure it's, it's, it's worse for them to be both closeted, attacked internally by their community, and then... You know, on the other side, outside the community, to be
3: attacked more publicly. Thank you so much for this, Khalil. Really appreciate talking to you. Take care.
1: Such a good conversation. Two good conversations. Yes. Yes. Really, I just love this family. But okay, let's kind of start with with Sadiqa, mm. and I really loved how she described kind of her journey toward where she's ended up. Yeah. As you know, as you know, she doesn't necessarily describe herself as an activist, and I love that Khalil <laughs> said the same. Like, oh no, she wouldn't call herself yes. an activist, but but you know, but I think, she is basically she is, yeah. yeah yeah, it's something in her personal life that just has, has kind of forced her yeah. to be more outspoken. And I love that we got some backstory from Khalil about kind of where, what kind of a person she is in general. I mean, that's kind of obvious from the position that she held with uh, nasimko Yes. But, you know, the story about their mosque and how yes. she stepped recruiting up. recruiting other women. And that was my favorite, mm. you know, what he said about how she, yes, yeah, she became a leader and she found ways to, to you know, take some of the authority and some power and make some good. But the really important thing is that she recruited other women yes. that she's not a leader in a vacuum that she's not threatened by the power of other people but invites them in and wants to change things structurally yeah. for her it's just like a logical extension of the right thing to do yes. is to speak out and yeah. she couldn't help but but
2: speak out and, and i loved as well her Honesty and frankness mm. about how she saw herself as moving from someone with homophobic views, as she called them, mm-hmm. uh, because that's how she'd always grown up and, and, and believed and thought, um, to what she describes as a new lens that you now can't stop mm. seeing without. Uh, you know, and that's such a beautiful description of transformation, and I mm-hmm. thought so honest.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
2: We all should aspire to that.
1: Yes. Yes. And then another thing that we wanted to dissect a little further is, and it came up in your conversation, of course, with Sadiqa was this difference between kind of tolerance and mm. acceptance, which, okay, that's, that's good. That's, as a kind of a baseline. Step, that's one. step one. Yep. But what of course we really need is... Inclusion and a more active, I mean, there's a difference, of course, between just saying like, okay, yes, I accept that you're a human being <laughs> with, with rights, and, you know, you don't hurt me and I don't hurt you, but what needs to come next is moving our society and our, our institutions and everything toward, okay, how can we actually make things more equitable? How can we right. bring everybody to the table and really, I guess, you know, involve everyone and celebrate who everybody yes. is.
2: Yes, and I and I loved that, that Sadiqa, you know, made that point about when there was some consideration of a discussion of this on a policy level within the organization, she asked and was told, no, we're not inviting any LGBTQ Mm. Muslims along. And and that, you know, that is so resonant with the work that we do. We're Mm -hmm. always trying to get the people to the table who this is about, because Mm -hmm. without them, you can't build the solutions. And and I thought that it was a a, a wonderful, the story is a wonderful metaphor Mm -hmm. for how we move on all kinds of fronts where we're not treating people equally.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, black Canadians, indigenous Canadians, uh, of course that parallel can be drawn to all sorts of, of groups. And then finally, I know you wanted to oh, to mention. Yeah,
2: I just love when <laughs> Khalil said that he felt uh, really privileged to have a parent who was willing to learn from her children, mm. because that is a personal goal of mine. And you know, my daughters and son might not necessarily agree that I do that I all think the time, would. but I do try, and I certainly <laughs> turn to them for counsel. And I feel very lucky that I can. I can get into their brains on things that they may have a deeper understanding of than I do because they
1: are a different generation. Moms like you and Sadiqa are modeling that curiosity, um, that willingness to always learn something new and, and to understand that you don't have all the answers and that you don't know everything and that you need to be learning constantly from other people. So I just love that this week we've gotten um, such a wonderful example of a family that does this so effectively and is such a, such a strong family that they care about each other enough and support each other enough to really be outspoken in a way that yeah. has gotten them Some flack in some ways, and it's not, I think, been an easy thing to go through. It's been a family decision. But it's been a family, as she she said, it's been a family decision.
5: In Other News. Welcome back to another segment of In Other News, where we share some updates from the world of access to justice. First up, we're showcasing Daedalus the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and it's winter 29 issue on access to justice. This issue of the journal examines the national crisis in civil legal services facing poor and low income Americans. From the challenges of providing quality legal assistance to more people, to the social and economic costs of an often unresponsive legal system, to the opportunities for improvement offered by new technologies, professional innovations, and fresh ways of thinking about the crisis. All essays in the Winter 29 issue are freely accessible and are on average around seven pages long. Bookmark this journal and read a few articles every so often. Though there's a focus on the American context, there's a lot here that is relevant to those interested in access to justice in Canada or other parts of the world as well. Second, in case you missed it, there were two important blog posts that came out this week. The first is part of NSRLP's column on SLAW.ca, Canada's online legal magazine. That blog post covers how insiders and outsiders can work together to inspire change in the legal system. It's something that we've talked about before and was one of the driving forces behind our SRL dialogue event last October. Hopefully this article gained some traction and we can inspire others to engage in collaborative and creative solutions to promote access to justice. The other blog post was released on our own NSRLP blog. A quick note about the blog in general, for those of you who might have missed our announcement during the hiatus from the podcast, we've revamped our blog, giving it an official name, the Access Revolution blog, Dispatches from the Front Lines. We're endeavoring to have a wider variety of content, including blogs by members of the NSRLP team, but also guest blogs by legal professionals, and of course, SRLs themselves. On that note, the new blog post of this past week was by guest Ann Rempel and covers the Lost Society of Ontario Complaint System. In this blog, Anne notes that there is an absence of statistics provided by the LSO and that it's hard to determine whether the complaints process operates in a timely, open, and efficient manner and whether it adequately balances the interests of the public and its licensees. As a result, and meticulously poured through and tabulated the 166 tribunal findings to make some conclusions. The largest single complaint category was, quote, failure to cooperate with an LSO investigation, unquote, which accounted for 42 of the 166 hearings. And also determined that only 10% of complaints reaching the tribunal originated from a member of the public, as opposed to another lawyer or from the law society itself. This is compared to 69 percent of complaints at the intake level originating from a member of the public. Though the mandate of the LSO is to regulate lawyers in the public interest, Anne's analysis concludes that the LSO complaints process disproportionately addresses complaints by lawyers about other lawyers regarding matters of interest to lawyers. This is definitely an eye-opening read And it's always useful to have data-driven conversations on how to improve institutions. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next week for a conversation with Malcolm Mercer, Treasurer of the Law Society of Ontario.